Here's a secret uh, to all those citations. I paid for them. <laughs> so. uh, well, the topic of today is uh, investing in children and coping with social inheritance effects. Uh, this is a theme I've been working on for many years, uh, sort of in the shadow of James Heckman, who has now sort of reconverted himself almost to a kind of an uh, academic priest on the matter. Uh, and I think there are good reasons why we should be worrying about this more and more as history <coughs> progresses. Uh, there are different ways that one can argue for this. One would be, uh, if one were thinking in an, as an economist, would be in Paratian terms, to try to find a Pareto optimum. Economists use Pareto optimum as a kind of a, a, a shortcut term to refer to two things that have to be maximized at the same time in order for it to be optimal. One is efficiency, that we get the biggest bang for the buck, and equity, fairness. Now, in terms of efficiency and equity, it's readily obvious to most people that investing in children will have a dividend on both counts. Uh, if we have strong social inheritance, meaning that qualities and circumstances beyond talent and abilities are decisive for life chances, then we clearly have a problem of equity. We also clearly have a problem of efficiency. Uh, I use uh, the term the Bush effect to illustrate this. Uh, that even the least talented children of extremely wealthy parents are more or less guaranteed <laughs> by over-investing in these children. That's not efficient. If you can guarantee uh, hyper life chances for ungifted children simply by over-investing, that is not, socially speaking, very efficient. The same goes, of course, for the other end of the spectrum, that children are barred from opportunities simply due to the conditions that they happen to be born into. Uh, now, if one were to make an argument, uh, uh, or to continue this kind of argumentation, one way, one way one might want to go is to look ahead demographically into the future. And what are we going to see? We're going to see a severe, severe, and in some countries, extremely severe problem of sustainability in the long run due to the demographic aging of populations, which is another word for basically saying very low fertility. But the large aging population of tomorrow is going to be very difficult to finance. Uh, and that the one, <coughs> one obvious remedy is to maximize the productivity of those few children that we have. That certainly should uh, ensure a better and more sustainable future uh, when the big demographic crunch comes, which is somewhere around mid-century. We might also think of it in terms of the value of children. Now, there are two kinds of values. One is the <coughs> internal value of a child to mama and papa. They love their child and it gives them happiness or frustration sometimes. Uh, but there's also such a social value of children. Some economists have tried to cash out what is 
the average child's social value when measured across the life of that child that is from birth to death. Of course, counting this kind of social value is very complicated because in parts of the child's life we spend money on behalf of that child, school for example. Later on, the child becomes a productive citizen, hopefully, and starts producing goods that are not just uh, private, but also have a social return for society. Uh, one estimate of the typical child's value for society <coughs> is somewhere around $100,000. Uh, so you can put in the exchange rate for pounds if you like. Uh, that's quite a considerable amount of social dividend for the average child, but remember that all children are not average, unfortunately. Uh, for example, a child who falls by the wayside, ends up in criminality, will cost <coughs> us enormously. Some people here may know that the annual cost of incarceration more in the U.S. more or less equals the annual cost of tuition at Harvard University, the most expensive university in the world. In other words, the losers are extremely expensive. Then, of course, there are also the Bill Gates that yield probably more than the $100,000 in terms of his life. Uh, so we can also here think of that optimum investment in children is going to yield a dividend in tomorrow's society. Amortizing across the life of individuals is the way to think about it, I think, in terms of the efficiency issue. Um, Think of the cost to society of when things go wrong. Uh, the Urban Institute is a very important research center in the United States that has estimated, has come up with the best estimates so far, and they are on the conservative side, of what is the cost to American society of America's high level of child poverty. <coughs> you may know that the U.S. has an extraordinarily high level of child poverty, and so does actually the U.K., uh, the estimate is about 4% of GDP lost due to the repercussions and side effects of child poverty. And they're more or less equally divided into three components. One being less education. Poor children have less education. I'm going to get back to that. The other one, poor health. Poor children have poor health. And the third one is behavioral crimina criminality, deviance, and these kinds of problems. All of them costly to society. Another way we could think of it, and here we're closer to the equity side of the Pareto coin, is to think of it in terms of uh, the puzzle that so much sociology of stratification has encountered over a long period of time uh, that is well captured in John Goldthorpe and Robert Erickson's book, The Constant Flux. It seems that over the entire post-war era, more or less, no matter the expansion of education, efforts to promote education and e equalize education among the social classes, the differences due to social class origins has been relatively constant across generations now. That is, it seems that whatever we do does not seem to work in terms of creating a more just society from the point of view of life chances. Now there are some parentheses to add to this because recent research is beginning to uncover 
uh, break in the constant flux scenario, uh, led clearly by the Nordic countries and some other countries are beginning also to show the, uh, the weakening of the inheritance syndrome, at least as far as education is concerned. I'm going to get back to that too. The third element of the phenomenon we're dealing with, I think, is the rising ante of our societies. I, I don't know how many here play poker. Uh, you pay to play. Uh, and the ante is the investment in order to be allowed to play the game. Now, if that ante rises and rises, and it does, in order to play the life game, then, of course, the importance of skills becomes ever more crucial for life chances. That's exactly the kind of society we are in today. The ante is rising in terms of the minimum skills required. Being able to, uh, being an unskilled laborer in the old days could get you a job. Today it's very hard. You need skills. Service economy requires perhaps not a PhD, but it does require a lot of social skills. The skills across the board are rising, and that, of course, is increasing the problem that we're dealing with. What we are not quite sure of is exactly the kinds of skills that are fundamental for life chances. And there's quite a debate about it. Nobody would doubt that cognitive skills are central, the ability to understand and use productively information. Uh, Heckman, though, he makes a very, very strong argument in favor of what he calls non-cognitive skills, <coughs> which is somewhat of a grab bag of everything that's not cognitive, behavioral uh, elements, the ability to communicate with other people's empathy would be part of it, uh, understanding the social environment in which you live would be those kinds of non-cognitive skills that matter in, in Heckman. Uh, now, whether it's cognitive or non-cognitive skills that are crucial, both in terms of developing your human capital and also in succeeding later on in life, uh, the issue is how are these distributed? And that's where I start with this table here, a rather simple table that gives kind of a snapshot of where are we today in the advanced world. Um, and I've used two indicators. One is essentially school dropouts, those, those that end up in life skillless from the point of view of education. They have nothing more than this kid too. Uh, that is virtually nothing in today's society. The second, I use indicators from the PISA uh, data sets. Uh, most of the debate about PISA is about the means. Is one country's mean higher or lower than the other ones? The Germans are always angry that they are not at the top in terms of the mean score, uh, and other countries get upset because they are lower than their neighbor country and so forth. That's rubbish and totally uninteresting. What's interesting is the dispersion around the mean, and that's why using math, and that's, that's important because it's more neutral in terms of immigrant populations. Uh, using math, I calculate here the proportion that I would call uh, uh, cognitive losers. They simply don't understand. They simply don't understand basic messages. This is not heavy algebra we're talking about here. This is so the ability to uh, understand a really fundamentally uh, simple message. And then I isolated a PISA elite, those that score in the top five 
percentile uh, uh, of the, of the, in, the, in the PISA ranking, in the PISA system. Um, now, unless you believe that some countries are genetically superior to others, which I don't think anybody here would believe, uh, uh, then these country differences that are quite dramatic that you see here, look, for example, in the first column where Denmark has a school failure rate of only about 4 or 5% compared to about 20% in the U.S. Those are dramatic differences. Or Spain, 31% of each cohort simply drop out with no real skills from, from the education system. Um, or if you look at the minimum piece, again, I'm very happy to see that Denmark is doing well there, whereas the U.S. and Spain, again, are doing very, very poorly. UK is not doing that great either. Uh, and the PISA elite, though, seems totally uncorrelated with the proportion who are the, 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 the PISA uh, losers. <coughs> There's no correlation whatsoever. Some countries have a very large uh, sort of PISA loser group. At the same time, they have a very large elite. Britain is one example of that. It's kind of a bipolar distribution of cognitive abilities. Other countries look very homogeneous. I'd say Denmark is an extreme ca case here, or perhaps also uh, France. And then there's countries that are able to <coughs> ensure very little uh, cognitive losers. And on the other hand, they have a fairly large proportion of elites. Finland excels in particular here. If this is not genetics, it must be institutions. And that's what we have to get at. There are no other reasons one could come up with that would make sense out of this variance other than that it's institutions. Um, <coughs> the bad news, let's begin with the bad news and then I'll get to better news later. Um, the bad news is we're swimming upstream. If our goal is to diminish social inheritance and ensure a maximally well-equipped child cohort for tomorrow, adulthood. Uh, why are we moving up, are swimming upstream? One reason has to do with the rising economic inequalities that are pervasive throughout all advanced societies in our epoch. Uh, over the past decades, in some countries, the Gini coefficient has jumped by more than 20%. That's, for example, the case in the UK, in the US. In others, the rise of in income inequality has been somewhat more moderate. Uh, that would be Scandinavia, that's somewhere in, in between. But by and large, with very, very few exceptions, no countries seem to have been able to escape the new inequality in the distribution of income. Uh, now, why is this swimming upstream? Why does this make our task all the more difficult to meet? Uh, one of them has to do, and here I'll show you my, sorry, this is to be ignored, uh, my first figure. Uh, we know from a lot of research that life chances are very powerfully related to original income inequality. The greater is the income inequality in the parent generation, the more will be the inequality among the children, both in terms of the parental capacity to invest in their children's schooling, and of course, this has then ripple effects later on as the life course proceeds. Uh, 
In other words, the more you have inequality in one generation, the more this is likely also to produce inequalities in the generation to come, the children. Uh, this, this I've illustrated with two columns, again, for a number of countries for which we have very good intergenerational income elasticity data. What does that mean? That means basically the correlation between parents' income and your own income as adult. And adult means uh, that you are somewhere in the mid-30s here, some, some more or less roughly speaking. So if you look at the red bars, you can see there's very great differences among countries in the degree of association or the link between parental income and child's income. In the US and the UK, it's very high, almost 0.5 in the UK, 0.5 in the US. Uh, France also comes off pretty badly here. Very strong association between parent income and and. Uh, and then it's fairly low in Scandinavia, particularly in Denmark. Uh, Denmark always comes out very well, in, I say. Uh, and again, I think I have to admit it's not for genetic reasons. <laughs> I, I'm Danish. Uh, <laughs> uh, now, we, I plot this simply against the Gini coefficient uh, for these countries somewhere in the, around 1980. Uh, this is the Gini coefficient for, for the... Uh, no, sorry, in 1990 it was, sorry. Uh, it doesn't matter much beca because until about 1980 it didn't change much from the 1960s into the 80s. The, the genies changed very little. Uh, it doesn't really matter very much. Uh, and you see it lines up quite nicely. It's another way of illustrating in a simplistic way this association between the more inequality we have in the society, the stronger is going to, going to be the effect of social inheritance, or here, income inheritance effects. And the likely mechanism here is the, the, the inequality in invest, investing in children, which is the big story I'm going to get to. Uh, <coughs> but there is a very important rider to this figure, which is the effects are not linear. They are very, very nonlinear. If you break up these correlations by quintile groups, you will find that all the action, or almost all the action, is at the very top, the George Bush effect, at the very bottom, the poverty effect. In the middle, there are not very strong correlations. That's why all research on intergenerational income mobility uses quantile regression types approaches in order to get at this nonlinearity. In fact, I think I brought it with me. Um, yes, here's an illustration I take from a study by uh, Marcus Yanti and others uh, where you differentiate the effect of in intergenerational income mobility by quintiles. I just took the middle, the bottom, and the top quintile. And what you see is Interestingly, for all countries, the top association is rather invariant. Denmark look now, looks now as bad as the U.S., exactly as bad. The, it should, for pure statistical neutrality, it should be 20% because we're dealing with quintiles. So if there's 36% uh, uh, 
in, in the top, that means there's a, they have a disproportionately high probability of ending in the top quintile, just like where their pa, pa was. Now look at the bottom. That's where the variance across nations is very distinct. In Denmark, they're almost 20, a little more, 25. But look at US, 42. The big, dark shadow of poverty and low incomes just kind of hovers over children's life chances here and dictates, or at least here in terms of correlations, okay, I shouldn't say dictates, but at least is associated with very inferior life chances. Their probability getting out of the bottom seems very low in comparison. Denmark is almost twice as good at it as the US. So the nonlinearity is the big story. Um, immigration is another element of swimming upstream that we also have to take into consideration. One of the great puzzles that I don't think we really have good answers to is that the second generation immigrants in any society converge with the local population in terms of demographic behavior, but not in terms of human capital. And the gaps seem to actually get worse. Uh, the evidence from several countries is showing that the gaps are getting worse. I have here a table where I used PISA data again to show in terms of these cognitive kind of tests. Uh, and again, I use here, as before, the math tests to neutralize the effect of having language difficulties and so forth and so on. Now, there, if one just measured the raw gap between immigrant population and, and, and endogenous uh, population, uh, and here we're dealing with 15-year-olds, uh, you find a huge gap. 60% uh, in Austria, you can see here, 80% in Belgium, which I think is the record high. Uh, Netherlands also very high. One thing one notices, actually, is the gap seems to be greatest in German-speaking countries for a reason I'm not certain why. Uh, but a lot of these gaps may not be due to immigrant status as such. They may be compositional. For example, immigrant families may have more children, they may have lower income, or there may be all kinds of other things that are not per se a characteristic of being an immigrant, but simply a, so a social correlate. Uh, so I cleanse these gaps of all these kinds of circumstances and get an adjusted net immigrant effect. And actually, in some countries, it disappears completely. Ireland, I think I have Ireland here, actually, the immigrants do better than the native population. Uh, in others, you continuously have a fairly large gap. Belgium, again, excels. Uh, one thing that is only very recently beginning to be understood is immigrant girls and immigrant boys do completely different, orthogonally different. And apparently the distance between the immigrant girls and boys is widening. There's research on this. I, it was Tony Heath has done some research on this here at Oxford. Uh, there's also recent data out from Scandinavia, Denmark in particular, that shows exactly the same profile. Some immigrant girls, uh, immigrant uh, uh, groups of, of girls, are actually exceeding the average Danes, whereas the immigrant boys are the disaster. <coughs> Again, a puzzle that we do not really understand. We really don't know what is happening very well there. Uh, 
third, swimming upstream, which is what's happening to our families, our family demography. The family structure is a crucial element of how parents invest in their children on several counts. One has to do with marital stability. We know that divorce and separation in childhood and lone motherhood has adverse consequences. Excuse me, whoops. I have to jump around a bit here. Here is a depiction from the US of the survival probabilities of marriages over many years. And I look in terms of income quintiles here. Uh, in, uh, in the US, as I said, uh, I don't know if you can see it well, but basically what it tells us is that increasingly the unstable partnerships, that is mama and papas that break up, are increasingly concentrated at the very bottom of the social ladder. And stability is increasingly the case among the, the top. You could measure it in, in education or almost any social kind of gradient you could think of, you get the same story. It's a new, very powerful trend in family demography that is unfolding in our society today. This, of course, means that if added to low-income effects, we also have family demography or family structure effects that accompany the income effects. You are going to have additional disadvantages if you're in the bottom. You might look at, for example, what is the probability or the risk here of a separation or a breakdown of the couple by comparing the bottom and the top. And the top is the light blue line that is on the top of all of the lines. And the bottom is the one on the bottom. So it lines up pretty perfectly in terms of the top and bottom. If you look at t after 10 years of marriage, which you would argue or, th or believe that's when roughly the children are in the ages of eight, nine, or seven, or six, that is uh, not a very good age in which to experience parental breakdown. Uh, you would see that the, the bottom already about 40% of all partnerships have ended, whereas among the top, it is hardly 20. A double probability. Within, within 10 years. And you can see that it exacerbates over time. Another family demographic component that also adds to polarization is marital <coughs> homogamy. Like marries like, particularly in terms of education levels. Uh, and what we're seeing is that increasingly the very highly educated <coughs> select themselves into very highly educated partnerships. So you're all going to end up getting married together. Uh, that's basically <laughs> the story. And the boss who married the secretary in the old days, that story is, is no longer. What happens for lower educated women, and this is really part of the tragedy and part of the polarization, is that they have no decent marriage market. Because low-skilled or unskilled men are simply not attractive partners in the marriage markets. And they're decreasingly so. One reason why we see a heightened concentration of lone motherhood uh, among very low educated women. They simply have very poor marriage prospects. Uh, 
In the U.S., a lot of them, the, the, the men in that marriage market, they're actually in jail. So this, the, the, the nature of family demography, mar marriage partner, and marriage instability uh, patterns in, in partnerships is adding powerfully to polarization in families. Uh, a third component of family behavior is the skewed nature of maternal employment. Uh, if you look at highly educated women, even in backward countries such as Spain, where I live, or Italy, you will see very high employment rates among highly educated women. It's among the lower educated women where the great challenge is. In Scandinavia, all women work all life, most of them full-time. Uh, that is not the case in most other countries. So the gap also in terms of the relative chances that mama is working and contributing to family income or if she is the sole earner, the probability that she's employed becomes decisive. Now, if you wanted to eradicate child poverty, what is the most effective policy? Everybody would come up with something about income distribution, uh, more support for families from the welfare state. I say, no, get mama out working. The probability of child poverty falls by a factor of four, that is 400%, when mama works. It's the most effective means to minimize child poverty. And that is why Scandinavia virtually has no child poverty, because all mothers work. Finally, up, swimming upstream again, that's really all bad news. <laughs> we are swimming upstream because partly as a consequence of what I just laid out in terms of demographics, <coughs> parental time with children or parental input into the children, parental stimulation or investment is also polarizing. Clearly, there's much less time for the child if it's a lone mother than if it's two parents. But what we are seeing is in particular in terms of what we might call developmental time, that is time that is kind of st cognitively stimulating, reading with the children, playing with the children, talking with the children, and so forth and on, the good things that parents ought to be doing, that is where the polarization is strongest. Uh, for example, we can, we, we, we've seen the most recent Scandinavian time use data, and we've see it, we see it also in the American, that highly educated, especially homogamous parents, uh, spend more than twice as much time with their children as do lower educated parents. Especially those two high educated couples, they are the ones that really devote a lot of time to their children. What is surprising couple, when they're highly educated today, even though they're both out working, they now spend more time with their children than they did in the golden 60s when the housewife, when the woman was a full-time housewife. This is partly because women, the highly educated, are today dedicating even more time to their children, even though they're, they're employed, than they did in the good old days uh, of the housewife. And because the father especially if he's highly educated, has increased substantially his time with children. Uh, in the last decade, 
using Danish data, or well, a little more than that, 12 years, we've seen a 50% jump in the time that fathers spend with their children. It's huge increases. But it's polarizing again. So everything we are seeing happening in families and in the economy are conjointly conspiring towards a scenario of very sharp polarization. Okay. Let me see if I can move from the bad news to some good news uh, and of something of some relevance for those of you who study social policy and may want to one day actively do something about social inheritance and children's life chances. Um, we know, and I think this is pretty much becoming a general consensus, that the myth of investing in education, more education, more education, of the post-war era, that was a failure in terms of ensuring greater life chance equality. Uh, and we know now why. I think one reason we didn't know until now, or until very recently, it's just in the last decade that sociologists and economists have really woken up to this, is because we never talked to the psychologists, <coughs> particular developmental psychologists, because they knew it all along, that the window, the crucial window of stimulation, in particular cognitive, developing the cognitive base for learning later on, is very early in childhood. It's very early in childhood. The first six, seven years are key. If it goes wrong in the first years, it is very difficult to do something about it later. Now, when we match that up against what has been the prevailing policy over now almost seven decades, it has been to invest in children from the age of six, seven onwards, ignoring early childhood almost entirely. But that's where it's crucial. That is also the most privatized period of children's lives. That's where they depend almost exclusively on parental or other family input in order to consolidate the base upon which they can succeed or not in school uh, from ages six, seven onwards. Um, that is also why family effects are so powerful because the children's input and human capital base depends so much on the conditions in those families. Then we're back again to the causal mechanisms. Are we in a position today to actually identify the the, the, some precise causal mechanisms that explain social inheritance and why in some countries, as I showed in, in the first table, some countries that such a large percentage of children do so poorly, 20 or even 30 percent? We have some of the smoking guns, I think, pretty well in place. One is, turning back again to what I started with, childhood poverty. Uh, we have pretty good American estimates by now of what are the effects of childhood poverty in terms of, <coughs> of ch child development and life chances. Uh, more or less, on average, a, child, a poor child will have two years less of schooling than a non-poor child. That's a very big price to pay. That's U.S. data. Everything in the U.S. is always more dramatic than in Europe. But the data we have for the U.S. depict the same pattern, somewhat less extreme. Um, these same children that were poor 
in childhood. They will later on as adults have 30% on average less earnings, basically due to less human capital to begin with, less schooling. And worse, they have almost twice as great a chance of ending up being poor parents. That is, the syndrome of poverty, child poverty, is just carried over from generation to generation. There is one smoking gun that's pretty clear. Now, there, there exists and there lies clearly here a very strong argument in favor of welfare state redistribution in favor of families with children. That is clear. Uh, and I think if, if there is any argument for some kind of a guaranteed basic income, it has to do with children. Because we know that the costs of that poverty are so great. And we know that the benefits of reducing it are as great. In other words, it's cost-effective. It's a very cost-effective type of redistribution. But remember, the really effective means of minimizing child poverty is not redistribution from the government, but where mama works. But sometimes mamas need support in order to be able to work. And that's probably where the welfare state should target its scarce resources to a greater extent than simply income transfers to the families. It would be much more effective to invest in uh, childhood, uh, child care and other services that help <coughs> reconciliation. But that's another story. That's another talk. Um, second element of the causal story here. Uh, here, some people might question uh, the, 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 the positive effects of maternal employment or that both parents are out working, that it might have adverse effects for the children. Well, I already mentioned that the data do not support this view. In fact, parents today are dedicating much more time than in the past to their children. That is, children have become much more of a positive good for the, ch for the, for the parents than it used to be. Uh, but we also have evidence about the impact of maternal employment on the children's development, particularly their cognitive but also non-cognitive development has been studied very intensively. Uh, one of the big names in this literature is Room, not R-O-O-M but R-U-H-M. Uh, the evidence suggests the following. Basically, it's three rules. It's a story with three rules. Maternal employment in the first year is harmful. There is clear evidence that if the children are not maximally with the parents, I don't, there's no evidence that mama matters more than papa in terms of the first year. There really is no evidence of that. Clearly, uh, probably in the first month or two, the mother's presence is probably more important than the father's. Uh, but over the first year, there's really no evidence. But what is important is maximally with the children because what I have learned from the developmental psychologists is that the ability later in, in, in early childhood to learn well, in cognitive development, depends on maximum sense of security in the first year. And that they, ch small children can obtain only with being maximally with their parents. So a one-year maternity parental leave 
policy would here seem like an optimal solution, some way or another, divided between the parents or whatever. That's another dimension that one can discuss, but it's not relevant for child investments. <coughs> Thereafter, parental employment, mama or papa or both, has no harmful effects on children and can be positive if, and here there are a couple of ifs, one, that the, the alternative is high quality. That childcare and child in, daycare institutions etc., have to be very high quality. That again means that one needs to think in terms of a policy that ensures a homogeneously high quality uh, child care system. Uh, what we have learned from U.S. experience is that where, that's where we get all the data on the effects here is the very uneven quality of, of U.S. child care arrangements that basically profile themselves perfectly against p parents' ability to pay. So you have cheap child care, you know, some lady down the street that takes a couple of kids and feeds them some popcorn and parks them in front of the television. That's cheap child care. And then there's the super fancy $25,000 a month uh, Park Avenue child care arrangements on the other extreme. Uh, <clears throat> that's rule number one. Rule number two, the quality of the mother's employment apparently matters greatly. And this is somewhat of a worrying rule or dimension here, uh, and it seems to have very big effects, that especially mothers that have uh, high tension type uh, employment, it, they carry it back to their children. And there is one smoking gun that we really don't have a clear policy uh, prescription for. Um, another evidence, but it's, it's not been shown very much, it came out in a study I did, where it turned out that boys and girls have very almost opposite effects of mother's employment. The girls react, have an extra positive dividend out of it, uh, maybe because of the role model effects. The boys are the ones, if there is any negative effects on maternal employment, is mainly um, concentrated among boys. Um, so if you want to give women an extra push ahead, uh, you, know, you know, take them away from the mothers and let the mothers work, and then the, the girls will get an extra dividend out of that, compared to the boys at least. Um, All right. We, we, we have a couple more surprises here in terms of how all this fits together. One is that the parental learning culture for the children is very little correlated with their socioeconomic status. It's already correlated with their education, but not with income, for example, at all. Uh, and uh, that if you line up these various effects, income, parental education, and then a simple variable that, for example, is used a lot in PISA, which is a very good to capture the learning milieu in the family, which is what, how, how many books do they have on their shelves? That, that latter one hits much stronger than any of the other ones. It beats in terms of you know, the competition between, between uh, variables. It beats all of them. The number of books in the family is really what, what kind of, what allow, what, what captures 
what is important in terms of children's cognitive development and school readiness and performance in school. Um, okay, I, I think I have to hurry up. I'm, I'm kind of dragging a, a little bit, am I not? 45 minutes, we're fine. Right. Um, so, uh, let see where I was. Yes, what we've learned so far, I think, what, what, what clear, is a clear conclusion, is the rising polarization of families. Uh, the, the poor, low educated, falling behind, highly educated, dual earner families are racing ahead. And the distance between the two is magnifying on all counts that matter for children's future. What, sort of to cite Lenin, what is to be done? <laughs> um, I think we can learn a lot from Heckman's, James Heckman's reevaluation of the effects of early childhood intervention programs in the US. Our learning from all this has to be taken with a grain of salt because everything in the US is just such, so much more extreme. So the effects that I'm going <coughs> to quickly condense for you from the Heckman evaluation uh, are to be interpreted very much in an American context. Now, early intervention programs in the US have their kinship in, in both in the UK and in other European countries. Uh, in the US, early intervention programs tend to be much more individualized, whereas in the US, uh, sorry, in the UK, they tend to be community-based. Uh, in the US, they tend to be primarily targeted to children of very poor lone mothers, Head Start, Early Head Start, and all the other programs that the U.S. has introduced over the past 30, 40, 50 years are very individual or family targeted. The U.K. approach has been much more, we go into communities and give them extra services. Uh, that both of them have advantages and disadvantages. The take-up rate in the U.S. is rather poor uh, because they are not able to catch the, the, those that really should qualify. The take-up in the UK model suffers from the fact that not all poor or low-educated or problem families live in a ghetto or live in a bad slum. So they might live in a, in a neighborhood or out somewhere where you don't find them because you're, you have a neighborhood-based program. Okay, what have we learned? The early evaluation showed that for each dollar invested in early childhood intervention programs, the yield was somewhere in the order of five to six dollars for each dollar invested. Now, if you talk to a stockbroker, he say, that's a fantastic investment. That, wow, that's really un unbelievable. You can't find much in the stock market that would beat that. The later re-estimations are now suggesting in the U.S., that each dollar invested in these early childhood programs yields up to $12. That's unbelievable. <coughs> What's the logic? Well, first of all, you have to understand what these early intervention programs do. They are generally des designed so as to attack multiple disadvantages. Disadvantages that come not just from low income or from poor parenting. It can also be from alcoholism or drug abuse in the families. It can be uh, highly 
tense families due to divorce or separation and conflict in families can be a multitude of problems. They're designed to be very broad in terms of uh, attacking uh, all these kinds of issues. But the main mechanism through which they work is high quality early childhood care programs. Head Start starts in kindergarten age. Early Head Start starts, as the word says, earlier even, preferably at age two. Uh, the, and what we are learning from these programs is the earlier start, except for the first year, the better. Catch them early. And the effect is of a double nature. One is a direct effect in terms of cognitive improvement among the children, which is very strong. The indirect effects, sorry, that direct effect then translates subsequently into better school performance. They don't fall behind in the school. And that has the second order effect, which is known or much less need for remedial programs that are very expensive and generally very ineffective. These children close the gap with, say, middle-class kids, substantially. Um, and we know from these evaluation programs, the third, or, or second or third dimension, I can't remember now, which is that the effect of high-quality early childhood programs is especially strong for the most disadvantaged children. In other words, you could, you could, you could think of these early childhood programs, care programs, etc., as cognitive redistribution in favor of those who are most disadvantaged. Uh, it homogenizes cohorts to a large degree. And this is where I get to, where I get back to all the, uh, sorry, here. This is the last kind of numbers I'm going to show you. Uh, this is data called the IALS, International Adult Literacy Survey data, that I used, uh, where you can estimate the probability, these are odds, of uh, making it through different stages of the education system. Here I focus on having studied beyond upper secondary level. So in the US, that would be beyond high school degree. In Scandinavia, it would be beyond gymnasium and so forth and so on, uh, some tertiary level. I didn't put any clause on precisely what level of tertiary, just that they had studied some tertiary level, all right? And then I look at it in terms of uh, coming from the lowest quintile parents, from very, very sorry, not lowest quintile, lowest educated parents. <coughs> So the, I'm honing in on children that come from relatively underprivileged social backgrounds. And then I compare cohorts. Cohort three is the oldest cohort, born in the, around 1950, if I remember right, 40s and 50s. Uh, that's my cohort. Cohort two, uh, I don't know if anybody here is a member of cohort two, born somewhere in the, around 1960. And cohort one is a lot of you, the, 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 the people from the master's program, PhD program, born somewhere in the 70s and beyond. <coughs> Why did I select these three cohorts? Because in some countries, the third, the, sorry, the first cohort, the young ones, are the ones in which 
early childhood care was universal. And those countries are called Denmark, Sweden, and to, an agree, to a degree also Norway. These are the first daycare cohorts. Because these were the first cohorts where virtually all, women, all mothers worked. Uh, and what, what this tries to tease out indirectly, and is only an interpretation of the results, is that there should be a strong diminution of the parental origin effect on educational achievement if you had this homogenizing effect of early preschool institutions. Now what do you see? In some countries you see uh, Goldthorpe type constant flux. Cohort 3, cohort 2, and cohort 1 in terms of the relative odds are constant in the US. A tenth of the probability. Huh? The same more or less is the story for the UK looks a little better than the, the US and the same is also the case for Germany to an extreme degree. Uh, Germany looks worse of all countries. Uh, less even than a tenth. But then look at Denmark, uh, the, the Norwegian cohort one data, I don't really trust. But the Danish, I do. Uh, I'm not really certain about that, that number. But the Danish, I, I'm sure of. Uh, now what happened in Denmark? Well, the children from low SEI background in the old cohort, they did comparably better than in America. But suddenly, when we get to cohort one, boing, a leap. Huh? It, it, they doubled in terms of the relative probabilities. Huh? So now they are, compared to the Americans, almost well four times more likely to have higher educational attainment than their equivalent uh, disfortunate kids in the US. It's a, it's a big change. We see the same logic in Sweden, and whether or not we believe the Norwegian numbers, we see the same thing in Norway. The reason, by the way, I don't really, I'm not sure about that Norwegian number, is simply because the ends, the, the sample size by these cohorts in Norway ended up being very small. This is not the smoking gun, but I think the evidence is beginning to accumulate. That, it, that early childhood programs have a hugely cognitive redistributive effect that transplants into much more homogeneous schooling and education effects that in turn mean that social inheritance effects diminish dramatically. And that's there we're back to that figure I showed you uh, with the income correlations between parental and child generations. I should just add, and I'll stop with this, that uh, the, the most recent study I did using the new silk data, uh, this couldn't be done for Britain, by the way, because it's Brit the British silk data here are really poor. Uh, but we could do it for a number of other countries, including Denmark, uh, Italy, France, Spain. Uh, there for these countries, we could do it. We got a similar pattern again, looking at for these kinds of effects. But very interestingly, what we saw was constant flux among children from the high income origins. They have not lost their relative advantage. But what has happened is children from the bottom have experienced a huge leap in opportunities. So it's kind of an asymmetric 
uh, <coughs> equal opportunities uh, scenario that I think is what is the uh, what is the expected outcome if you use a universal early childhood investment policy as your shortcut to diminishing social inheritance and maximally investing in children's fortunes. And I'll stop it there. I think everybody's almost falling asleep. Thank you.